Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Shavar Jeffries, the leader of Democrats for Education Reform. I believe choice is freedom. Low-income people, people of color should always have choices. And I actually think particularly for black people, we know precisely what life looks like in the absence of choice. I just think as a fundamental first principle that we ought to expand options on a whole variety of different domains. Education is just one. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Uh, this week, July 9th, uh, Monday, July 9th, is my birthday. It's my Jesus year, my 33rd birthday. And I've been thinking a lot about like what my intention will be for the new year. And there's this quote that I keep coming back to. And the quote is, if it's meant for you, you won't have to beg for it. You will never have to sacrifice your dignity for your destiny. And I just keep thinking about that, that like the things that are meant for us are meant for us, which doesn't mean that we don't fight for things. It doesn't mean that we don't have desires and wishes and they won't push but like we won't have to beg for the things that we deserve or like sacrifice parts of ourselves for our destiny. And I'm trying to take that with me as I go into uh, my Jesus year. So I wanted to offer that. Let's get to it. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-I-A-Y on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. So for those who've been following along, the World Cup is in its final four. By the time this airs, the games are on Tuesday and Wednesday. So yeah, final four, semifinals, England, France, Belgium, and Croatia. We were joking that it's unfortunate that so many teams from the Global South are no longer in the tournament uh, and got knocked out early. Uh, It was hard to say goodbye to the African teams. It was hard to say goodbye to the South American teams. But If you watch the games, you probably look and you're like, man, I didn't realize France had that many black people. I didn't realize England had that many black people. I didn't realize Belgium had that many black people. Trick is they don't, but they do on the soccer field. (laughs) And all these countries, man, all these countries, they like don't really like migrants until you put them on the soccer field and then they get real hype and they're like, we love you until we can make you some money. There it is. Mm, ain't that how that works? DeRay, who do you think going to win the World Cup? I know nothing about football. I mean, soccer. I know nothing about soccer. Um, <laughs> so, I'm not very helpful in this. Well, for a bunch of black women in New Orleans this week, it was a different kind of World Cup because it's Essence Fest. It's the biggest um, Essence Fest since Hurricane Katrina. So it obviously means incredible things for the city of New Orleans. But if you have never been to Essence Fest or heard of Essence Fest, I highly suggest that you watch the movie Girls Trip, which was centered around this festival. And I, I love it for so many reasons. It's such a black festival, right? Because it's like very little of it is outdoors. It's like, hey, y'all, we paid a lot for these hairstyles. I don't want to get it rained on and I don't want to stand in mud so we're going to be in the Superdome for the concerts <laughs> and we're going to be in the convention center um, where we hear from incredible women leaders like Maxine Waters and Mary J. Blige and 
my friend Alencia Johnson from Planned Parenthood, lots of awesome people. Uh, and the concerts every night have been epic. So last night we heard from Queen Latifah and Brandy and Salt and Pepper. And tonight we'll hear the purveyors of New Jack Swing. I met Taj from SWV last night and I almost lost my mind. I mean, I'm just such a big fan. And the, S- the, the festival will close tonight with none other than the queen herself, Janet Jackson. Uh, and so shout out to the entire team at Essence and all of the organizations and companies that have made this such an empowering place for black women this weekend. And shout out to New Orleans, best city in the world. Woo-hoo. I've been to Essence Fest a couple times and it is so incredible to see both the celebration of black women, the celebration of like black culture uh, at such a incredible scale. And you know, the oldies but goodies have a lot of sway here at Essence Fest. You're like, I didn't even know that person was still alive who sung that one hit. But they are here at Essence Fest, and <laughs> that is very exciting. My piece of news is a new study that just got published a couple weeks ago called, the title is Police Killings and Their Spillover Effects on the Mental Health of Black Americans. So this study is fascinating because it looks at the impact that killings of unarmed black people have on the black population as a whole. Uh, in terms of mental health. So when we think about police violence, oftentimes we think about people who are directly impacted by it. So you know, we know, for example, through the data that we've collected and, and other folks at Fatal Encounters and killed by police and, and us through mapping police violence that about 1,200 people are killed by police every year and about 50,000 people are hospitalized with injuries caused by police every year. So those are people directly impacted. What this research does is extend that to actually look at the ways in which these police killings actually traumatize uh, the entire community, whether or not you have personally been impacted by police violence. And what they find in matching up the data that we've collected at Mapping Police Violence, looking at the relationship between that database and the U.S. Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, uh, which is a, a survey of health particularly mental health of Americans. And what they find is that in states where an unarmed black person is killed by police, uh, the black population as a whole reports additional days of being in what they call poor mental health days. So this is when the, the person reported that their mental health was not good. Their bottom line finding is that Police violence uh, against unarmed black Americans contributes 1.7 additional poor mental health days per person per year uh, for black folks. Uh, And so when you actually look at, you know, you compare this level of impact on mental health to other issues, uh, it's really, really bad. So, you know, in total, the number of poor mental health days caused by police violence against black folks uh, is on par with is slightly less than the total negative mental health impact of diabetes in the black community uh, is the finding there. I bring this to the table because it speaks to the ways in which the trauma and uh, and the impact of police violence, sustained police violence in communities uh, can impact people who have not experienced police violence, but who uh, nevertheless are impacted by the images, by the ways in which police violence continues to show up in our communities. I'm so glad that you brought this up, Sam. First of all, it's a reminder of the importance of data. Um, had the work that our crew done around mapping police violence not existed, there would not have been a broad database to which, or against which rather, they could juxtapose the mental health data. And, you know, we have talked, especially lately, a lot about mental health. I and others have been very open about our struggles with it. And I haven't really talked about this particular aspect of it. But when I first found a therapist in 2014 during the height of the uprising, because I was in therapy all during the Ferguson uprising, 
I had to find someone who understood racial trauma and racial stress and with whom I could have those conversations. I needed to have a therapist who was culturally responsive and culturally competent and didn't just dismiss racial trauma as something that I made up. Not only would that have been problematic because I wouldn't have been able to process the racial trauma I was enduring on the streets of Ferguson every day and watching black and brown people be gunned down by police across the country, it also would have doubled up on that trauma because whenever marginalized people finally discuss our trauma, the invalidation of that trauma actually increases the trauma. I remember the the days following the killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, I couldn't get out of bed. I called into work. Um, At the time, I was leading an entire nonprofit and had to tell people that I had to cancel my calls. Um, And I was very honest with them as to why. And I also let other people who may have needed to do the same thing, take that time. Um, Similarly, as I have worked with folks who are working directly with DREAMers and the immigrant population, um, have given them the time off that they have needed to mentally recover to be able to do this work every single day. Being black is not a burden. My country has made it one. And I am immensely proud to be who I am and am, am continuously fighting for and looking forward to the day that my blackness is no longer seen as a weapon and that my blackness is not weaponized against me to continuously hurt me. One of the researchers who led the study did an interview with NPR and noted that they weren't telling people in black communities specifically something that they didn't know. Like They knew that this study was Uh, that the findings weren't new to people and communities, so that was important to just put out. I'll read, though, what uh, what they did say. And the quote is, from the clinical side as a physician, these events really kind of show you that when something happens in a community, there's a trauma that is a pathology, meaning it's a true illness, and that health systems, community health centers, public health organizations can try to rally around people to make sure that people are okay and that we're treating the burden of disease that's there. So I think that's why it's useful to put numbers around something that many people have noted anecdotally, because it's sharp the case for action. And it also lets us know the scope of the problem, potentially how we need to address it. And I think that echoes back to like why we did Mad Police Violence and Campaign Zero, all that work in the beginning, and like why the data is really important, because it does sharpen the case for action, that there are some things that we know to be true and the data just confirms it. There's some things that we think to be true and the data confirms it. There are other things that we don't even know to ask questions about, and the data helps us actually like move through. So you think about like what happens when the only way that we know if you got killed by a police officer in this country is from newspaper reports. It's sort of a wild that we think that we're like undercounting people. When you read some of the interviews that the authors of this study have done since it came out, they actually have also said they think that they're underestimating the impact uh, given like how much we actually don't know about the violence of the policing communities. And I think this is a case study, not just for the work around policing that we do, but also to show that there are places that need serious change or wholesale transformation. And there actually just isn't a ton of data out there that allows us to think about how to change it at scale. About a month or so ago, um, the new lynching memorial and museum in Alabama opened up from the Equal Justice Initiative um, and Brian Stevenson, which has been a, uh, an initiative long in the making. And, and Brittany went down and, and movingly. Uh, wrote about it and spoke about it. And I have not had the opportunity to go yet, but I'm hoping to to make it down there by the end of the summer. But uh, part of what it has people thinking about, including this writer, uh, Brenton Mock from City Lab, is this the way that we sort of, the nomenclature 
that we assign to certain phenomena in American history, right? So the Great Migration, for example, is this time period where millions of African Americans left the South in hopes of finding sanctuary and better opportunities in cities in the North. And and the thing is, sometimes we talk about it in in these passive terms, right? As if people just woke up and said, oh, well, I'm going to it would be nice to live in Harlem instead of Jackson, or it would be nice to live in Chicago instead of Montgomery. And, and they just kind of like said, whoop-de-doo, let's, let's hop on the train and, and see what that's like. But instead, and what, what happens is that then we don't understand it as, you know, these 30 or 40 years where like six to seven million refugees like literally fled the South in response to the threat of racial terrorism, right? And while certain opportunities, you know, did present themselves when they got to these new cities, many of the people were simply escaping one sort of violence and then running into a different kind. So you might leave Mississippi and escape lynching in the Klan, but then you find yourself in Chicago being redlined out of your neighborhood and beaten by police. And and even Dr. King talked about the sort of, how he had never seen the sort of level of hostility and violence in that he saw in Chicago in any place in the South. And so Brenton makes a really interesting point. He's like, why do I don't even understand why we call it the great migration. We should call it something like the great massive force exodus or, or something that, that more accurately captures the unique nature of the violence that these people were fleeing. And that, you know, Isabel Wilkerson, who's the sort of, who wrote the preeminent book on the great migration, the warmth of other sons. I, I just can't, can't recommend it enough. One of the most important books, I think, that has been written uh, in decades. And she agrees, right, that language doesn't really capture what black folks were were doing and that black folks were essentially seeking political asylum in their own country. And, and I think about this a lot, obviously, with everything that's going on at the border and, and the sort of the way that so many people from, they're not wholly analogous, you know, obviously, they have their own sort of idiosyncrasies and, and unique manifestations and unique histories but but I think it is interesting to think about what we call and what we name things and how that impacts our sort of collective memory our collective imagination and the way that we understand and remember certain things happening and and I'm sort of curious how we'll remember and what we'll call this period of time in which you know people were seeking political asylum in the United States because of uh, again violence that the United States sort of perpetuated in these countries um, and if you haven't read or watched the documentary, The Harvest of Empire, I really recommend that as well to give a sense of like how the how U.S. intervention in Latin America shaped the immigration crisis. But that's all to say, I thought it was really fascinating. And, and it's interesting to think about what we call things and what we don't. You know, I took my mother for the first time to the Blacksonian for her birthday a few weekends ago. Um, And it so happened that my aunt, her sister, her only sister that does not also live in St. Louis, she lives in California, was in town with her husband. And so we were all able to go together. And we were standing in line to see Emmett Till's casket, which if you have not been to the museum or experienced that is a particularly somber um, and gripping moment of, uh, of the museum. But as we're standing in line, my Aunt Beverly starts to tell me about my grandfather's brother, who I had never heard about before. And it's because my grandfather's brother was essentially accused of the same thing that Emmett Till was accused of when he was killed, um, of speaking to a white woman in some kind of way that white men deemed inappropriate or unacceptable. Um, And he went home after being threatened by these white men. And my great-grandfather basically told my great-uncle that he had to leave and never turn back. 
Now, because of the era, chances are that his number was counted amongst the numbers that we consider and qualify as the Great Migration, but that was not a voluntary migration. That was a fleeing. My grandfather never saw his brother again until, like, for the rest of his life um, because he had to hide out and he never knew who was coming for him or what generation of those families that were somehow angered by his mere existence uh, would come for him. And so they, they literally were disconnected for the rest of their lives. Again, that's not a migration, that's a fleeing for your life. And this is why language matters so much. And I really hadn't even considered it until I read this article, because what are we taught? We're taught the great migration. And I learned from, especially in elementary school, some very culturally responsive educators who made sure that our teachings on the Great Migration in second and third grade included explorations of things like Jacob Lawrence's Migration Series. Jacob Lawrence is, of course, a black painter who um, his most famous series actually explores what we refer to as the Great Migration. And yet, even in that culturally responsive context, no one questioned or interrogated the language. It is part of the reason why I and many others have been really adamant to remind people that phrases like we're a nation of immigrants actually really erases some people who were not voluntary immigrants, like those of us who are descendants of enslaved Africans, or people who are indigenous to this land, right? And there is a way that we can come together in solidarity and fight back against oppression altogether, oppression against immigrants, oppression against indigenous people, against black people. We can do all of that without choosing words that erase people's entire identity. And I think this this article about the Great Migration is another great reminder of that. Clint, I'm happy that you talked about this this notion of like the power of language. You know, I think often about the difference between punishment and consequence and people use the terms interchangeably, but they mean very different things. And punishment is often about pain, consequence is about change. And we have built systems that are meant to punish people. Like it's not about any change, it's about just making sure they experience pain for whatever happened. It's one of the reasons why we no longer say police brutality, but we only say police violence because Brutality makes it seem episodic and sort of sporadic. Uh, violence seems consistent to people. It's also why, you know, the police will say, like, you have to obey a, a lawful order. And we're like, well, just because you said it doesn't make it lawful, right? That, like, the legislature actually makes the law, you enforce them. So when you're giving out orders that are not based on things that the legislature has done, you're actually engaging in misconduct. And I even think about, like, if you Google, uh, for those of you listening and Brittany Clinton Sam, like, if you Google New York Daily News and search for the word brute, it's fascinating because when the New York Daily News uses the word brute, it is, like, almost always a black person they're describing. So it's like the, you know, I can, I'll just pull up this example. Um, And it's like, and, like, mind you, it's like people who've done bad things, right? It's like people who have, like, done bad things. But it's this dehumanizing language that is like really problematic. So, like, if you Google literally, like, the headline is like, brute stomps on victim. And then it's like, brute. And it's like, what are the circumstances where you call somebody a brute? Like, using like such dehumanizing language that they're like, they're not a person who's been accused of something wrong. They're not a person who did something bad. Like, you've actually made them like less than human, some othering thing. And, and that's like a, that's still happening to this day. And like, that actually changes the way that people think about the worth and value of other people. And we just need to be mindful of it. And I think you're right to bring this up as important news. 
So I wish I had some positive news to add to this, but unfortunately I do not. There were some students who boldly and bravely stood up in Detroit and decided to actually sue their public schools based on the dismal conditions that they had been experiencing throughout their educational lifetime. Essentially what they were saying was that because of overcrowded schools, a lack of basic resources like books and pencils, classrooms that were incredibly cold in the winter and incredibly hot in the summertime, and schools that were infested with rats and insects, that they had received an unequal education that had not prepared them for the world, including actually teaching them basic skills of literacy. This past Friday, a federal district court judge in Michigan actually decided to dismiss this class action lawsuit, basically saying that access to literacy, as they describe it, is not a guaranteed right. Uh, When he dismissed the suit, Judge Murphy actually said that the lawsuit itself failed to show that the state had practiced overt racial discrimination in not providing these basic skills and abilities. He did concede that the conditions at some Detroit schools were, quote, nothing short of devastating. But again, he threw out this case. The lawyers who are backing these students up are preparing to appeal, as they should. But it really led me to think about a couple of things. One, if access to literacy isn't a fundamental right, I don't know what is. We've had so many conversations in the public sphere around the preservation of public schools, around ensuring that students, irrespective of their background, their nation of origin, or their zip code, actually receive the kind of education that they deserve. And this seems like an incredible blow to that very notion, to that very idea that every single child, regardless of where they come from, deserves a great education. It also, though, made me think about Brown versus Board of Education. We've talked before about how much schools are segregated today. In fact, they are more segregated now than they were before that court ruling. And the holding of the court stated that separate was, of course, inherently unequal. Here's what they said. The court at that time said desegregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race, even though the physical facilities and other tangible factors may be equal, deprive the children of the minority group of equal educational opportunities. We believe it does. In other words, what they were saying was even if all things are equal. The facilities are the same. The quality of instruction is the same. The um, resources that are provided are the same. That separate is still inherently unequal. So to me, it would follow that if separate is inherently unequal, even if even if all of the other physical factors are equal, when the physical factors are not equal, then most certainly this deprives uh, young people who are living in marginalized and low-income circumstances. It would follow that children who are having to to go to school while rats are crawling beneath their feet, children who have to put on blankets and wear multiple coats so that they can concentrate during the winter, children who are going to underfunded schools that don't even have the kind of books that they uh, require in order to learn how to read, that that is an abdication of our constitutional responsibility. Um, And so I'm certainly disappointed by this court ruling. I am hopeful that the appeal is successful. Um, I'm deeply proud of these students and families and communities that stood up to combat this. Um, And at the end of the day, access to literacy and a quality education should be the right and is the right of every single child that we hold dear. So I think this case really highlights a major flaw and gap in the construction of sort of what's considered a fundamental right in America compared to other countries. So 
the United States has one of the oldest constitutions in the world that's still in effect. And part of that, you know, we often hear that being talked about as, you know, a great thing because that means that it's sort of the longest stable system of governance and, you know, there are benefits to that. But there are also problems with it. And one of the problems is that uh, it is one of the only constitutions in the world that does not include a fundamental right of education in it. Uh, so a analysis from a global ranking of education systems produced by uh, Pearson, which is a publishing company, uh, ranked the United States 17th place out of uh, 40 countries uh, in terms of the quality of its education system. And every single country that was ranked higher than the United States included in their constitution or in stat national law uh, a fundamental right to basic education and literacy. Uh, the United States does not include that even to this day. So much so that the Constitute Project, which looks at uh, national constitutions of countries all across the world, found that education is mentioned in 174 different countries' constitutions, almost every single country, uh, as well as the term uh, health or healthcare in 170 countries. Uh, but these are not featured in the United States Constitution. And so, you know, I think this is an example of a system that needs to be updated, a system that, you know, I think at the time of its creation did not really center education, healthcare, the right to vote, and so many things that uh, are at least now, considered something that, that should be a fundamental right throughout the world, um, but those are not embedded into our constitution or national law in a way that, uh, frankly, it needs to be in order for us to catch up with the rest of the world. Uh, so the, my piece of news is about the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Office. Uh, so there are two things that this office is doing that are both problematic that I feel like have not really been covered in the news uh, mainstream. So they've opened up a new uh, USCIS office in Southern California, and what they're going to do is review... Uh, people's applications for green card status uh, to see if they lie during the application process by potentially using multiple identities to defraud the government. So this is unprecedented because like what this is not like they didn't catch anybody. They didn't. This isn't because there was some big scandal. This is literally the result of uh, them trying to figure out like how they can deport more people in a way that we've just never seen happen at this scale in the country before, which is sort of wild. So there's going to be a whole new pop-up office that just is going to like review cases. And if they see that somebody lied according to whatever metrics they use, then they will um, key them up for deportation. So that is wild. And we should be uh, mobilizing against that. The second thing they're doing, which is also really problematic, and I think about when I was a chief human capital in Baltimore, we had a set of teachers who were from the Philippines or were from different countries, and we helped manage the immigration process as their employer. And traditionally what happens is, is when you're going through the process, and if you're denied at any step of the way, there's an appeals process, and you can you can loop back, and, and if you apply for a change in status, so to go from like one type of visa to a green card or something like if you apply for any type of status it might be denied and there's a process for dealing with the denial uh, what ucsis uh, just announced on the 28th is that non-citizens who apply for a benefit uh, and it's denied they will be placed in deportation proceedings immediately and it's like that is just sort of wild like that's just like we it's so wild that like, I don't even really have the language, but think about like somebody wants to extend their visa and it just gets denied. They will automatically like immediately be put in deportation processes. No right to appeal, no no due process. And that is just like a lot of power to centralize in a department that we've not seen 
uh, Congress make any attempt to provide real oversight. So I just wanted to bring that up as, uh, as my piece of news this week. So this makes me think a lot about the concept of margin for error and how the margin that you have to make a mistake changes dramatically depending on uh, your identity and your and how the society values you. And so we see a process being set up here for immigrants to have essentially no margin for error. So, and not even their own error. So if you lie on an application, then you have no margin for error and you're just placed automatically in deportation proceedings. Or if you are trying to you know, do everything right. You don't lie about anything. You go through the process. You apply for something, and for whatever reason, it's denied. Maybe somebody else who needed to, uh, you know, corroborate something didn't reply in time, and you're still placed in deportation proceedings. So, of nothing that you've actually done, you're automatically uh, given absolutely no margin for error, even if you didn't even make an error, uh, and you're thrown out of the country. Meanwhile, we see from this administration, whether it's Sarah Huckabee Sanders, whether it is. Trump himself, whether it is the range of different people that this administration puts in front of us, routinely uh, and pathologically lying to the American people with absolutely no consequences whatsoever. And I think that juxtaposition tells you everything that you need to know about injustice and inequity and the ways in which power uh, strictly curtails uh, what people can do uh, if you are brown, if you are black in the society, if you're an immigrant, compared to uh, if you are rich and white and have a position of power. I've been having trouble determining exactly what I'm going to say without cursing. Because when we take this in the context of everything else that is happening, it is very clear to me that this is intentional and systematic. This is a place where I actually feel like the word or the phrase rather racial anxiety is appropriate and not just a euphemism where somebody should just say racist. To be clear, this is racist. I would be hard pressed to believe that the applications uh, that are going to be called into question are going to be ones for mostly European immigrants. And I don't care who you are, you're gonna have a hard time convincing me of that. But my point though, is that there has been a lot of anxiety by people who identify as white, non-Hispanic, and single race, right? So I'm not talking about people who are biracial or multiracial and one of those races they, they identify as white, or as people who are coming from Latin American countries or Spanish-speaking nations, but would be considered white, right? I'm talking about non-Hispanic, single-race white people. The narrative has been that those people are slowly, but actually not slowly, are quickly becoming outnumbered. Uh, to be very clear, people of color have always been the global majority, but the idea that people of color would be the American majority is something that has been reported on far and wide, and yes, has absolutely been causing a ton of racial anxiety for people who have been convinced that a racial outnumbering will mean their detriment, right? Now, there are plenty of us who have been outnumbered uh, as, as black people, as Latinx people, as API people, as native people in this country for decades, and we've somehow managed to survive just fine. But this racial anxiety has led to um, not just the kind of fear that helped elect this person and create this administration, but a lot of policies that we have to consider altogether. So we have been spending a lot of time talking about what is happening to new immigrants, those that are being detained and separated from their families, the ways in which asylum seekers are going to be 
um, pushed back from their ability to attain asylum, especially if they're coming from Central American countries. We talked about that last week on the pod. We also have talked about the fact that TPS holders, so people from Haiti and from the Sudan and other places who are fleeing persecution, that those waivers are being overturned. Uh, now we're seeing that immigrants who have already been approved and are holding their green cards or their citizenship are going to be looked at all over again so that you can get rid of an existing population of immigrants. Then we already consider all of the ways in in which black and brown and native people in this country are being incarcerated uh, far more than white people. And then when you add to that the travel ban on black and brown and Muslim countries, you cannot tell me that this is not intentional, that this is not systemic, and that this is not an all-out effort by this administration, this so-called president, and the people that support him to preserve a white nation. This country was never a white country. The first nations that were here were indigenous to this land, and those people are not white. Indigenous people, people of color, black folks, Latinx folks, Asian folks, Pacific Islanders, people in marginalized racial circumstances are feared by the people who are convinced that us existing will take away from them. I don't think this is an overstatement. I don't think this is an exaggeration. I don't think this is hyperbole. I think it would be silly of us not to proceed knowing that this is exactly what some people wanted. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash people. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. 
Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And here's my conversation with Shavar Jeffries, the leader of Democrats for Education Reform. Shavar, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here. It's good to see you. Now, you run Democrats for Education Reform. What is that for people that have no clue what that is? Yeah, so Democrats for Education Reform, we're a policy and advocacy organization. And we we exist at the intersection of traditional democratic approaches to education policy, which is rooted in significant investments and focusing on educational opportunity for low-income kids, kids of color, kids who speak English as a second language. Uh, so we support what Democrats traditionally have supported in terms of you know increased investments from the federal, state, and local level, uh, civil rights commitment to making sure that, you know, again, all kids are educated at a high level. Uh, but we also push for innovation and change because particularly for low-income kids of color uh, in too many cities, uh, and frankly, even low-income white families in rural communities, uh, public schools haven't worked at the level that they ought to. And some of the policy approach have been very stagnant. Uh, so we push for a variety of different innovations uh, from more differentiated uh, professional development programs to support uh, teacher prep, reimagining teacher prep. Uh, so it's not just a traditional schools of ed model, but allowing new providers to get uh, into that space. Uh, we do a lot of work around accountability. So we worked on Race to the Top, work on ESSA. Uh, we believe in more choice and more f- options within the public sector. So not private or for-profit options, but public school options. Uh, both in the traditional district as well as in the public charter space. And then higher ed reform is big for us, too. A lot of the work we've seen for the last 25 years in K-12, we need in higher ed. Many colleges are dropout factories for low-income kids, where kids are going into the debt, not graduating, not ready for their future, and have this oppressive debt on their back. Now, there are a lot of people who, when they think about the ed reform space, it still feels pretty white and pretty focused on like the lip right. service about communities of color yep. and not sort of the practice of communities of color. And when I've seen people sort of push defer, it's been sort of like a, does the defer staff sort of represent the communities mm-hmm. that they say they serve? Like it was right. started by rich white people. Is this mm-hmm. actually an organization mm-hmm. committed to reform 
that will impact people of color in a, in a deep way. So my question is like, how do you sort of, how do you conceive of the reform space? And I think about places like Colorado that you guys haven't had like a great sort of experience in. Yeah. Uh, and how do you conceive of that space actually being rooted in something akin to equity and justice? Yeah. You know, I think the ed reform space, like so many spaces in the United States has to wrestle like any space in the United States with white supremacy you know, patriarchal notions. And this space is no different from any space. Um, you pick any space in the United States and these same issues of white supremacy, people of color not being empowered the way they need to be is an issue. So I absolutely see that in the ever-formed space. The organization I run under the leadership I have are committed fully to these issues. Uh, our staff reflects that. Our work reflects that. Uh, the priorities we uh, push reflect that. Uh, but there's no question. I mean, we've seen situations where uh, ed reform folks, uh, well-intentioned, uh, oftentimes have come into communities, uh, have sought to close schools, but did so in a way that wasn't in partnership with communities. Uh, we see too many charter schools, for example, not run by community-based people, not run by people of color. Um, that's a problem. Uh, we have, I do think we have seen also some important steps over the last maybe three to five years by stakeholders in the ed reform space to invest more community-based leadership, invest more in charters and other organizations run by folk of color. But this is America, right? So I'm not surprised that there's white supremacy in this space, just like I'm not surprised that when I worked with more traditional civil rights organizations, I saw white supremacy in that space. You know, this is an ongoing challenge that we have to call out wherever we see it. Uh, we do that. Uh, we don't support any charter school, for example, that's not operating at a high level. And even if you're operating at a high level, if we don't see people of color running it or in position of authority, we call you know we call that into question. And I think we have to continue to do that while at the same time acknowledging the important steps that have been made in this space. Because even despite some of the challenges, I've seen you know in the Credo study attest to this that Black and Latino students uh, in the largest cities in this country uh, have been significantly benefited in terms of uh, college attendance rates, college graduate graduation rates uh, because of these reforms. But at the same time, we have we still have many issues that we got to address. We got to make some improvements. The conversation about choice is like fraught in, yeah, the, in the ed right. space. And there's some people who say, you know, like we don't need choice because every school was great, then you would need choice because every school would be great. Right. And I'd love to know like what your response is. Like how do you defend choice when people on the left are against it? Uh, my entry into this space is fighting for equity for black people and from, from my community. And I use that as a space to expand to any, any population. I believe choice is freedom. And so I believe uh, low-income people, people of color, should always have choices. And I actually think particularly for black people, we know precisely what uh, life looks like in the absence of choice. And so I'm just, I just think as a fundamental first principle uh, that we ought to expand options on a whole variety of different domains. Education is just one. Furthermore, um, we know that in many cities where black and brown kids are disproportionately taught, the schools have not produced at a high level, which is precisely why people with money have moved out over 30, 40 years. Those who remain either send their kids to private schools or they have political connections so they can call the district and get their kids into the magnet schools or the better performing schools. Um, it's actually only people who don't have choice who are the ones in the schools where only one in 10 kids are going to college. So to me, that's a fundamentally moral outrage. And so I'm very unapologetic by demanding more high quality. Now, high quality is the key, right? Because if it's not a quality option, it's really not a, a viable choice. And so uh, to me, I can't see how anybody uh, would want to argue credibly that black folks and low income people and uh, Latinos as well should have fewer choices. Because in fact, everybody else already has choice. These are just the populations that, that seem not to. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me from a policy perspective. I would push and say that, like, there are 
like parents and teachers who aren't convinced by that, right? Who would say things like, every school should be great, so why should there be, like, why why should we create all these different sort of options for people that is what sort of choice at its most basic element is? And I want to know what you say to those people. I get what what you just said to me is like what you'd say to like a policy person. That makes sense to me. I get it. Like, that makes sense. But I'm not convinced only because I've like heard people not be convinced by that. Like, that that actually sort of, I don't know, does anything to the way they think about choice. Or like, how do you sell choice to, how would you like walk into a room with parents and talk to them about the importance of choice? In an ideal world, uh, the best situations you have a, a, a school in your neighborhood that's easy for you to get to, right? So you don't have to send your kid to you know, long distances. Um, that's accessible. That's operating at the higher, le- highest level. That's that absolutely that'd be ideal. Sadly, the reality is, and this is why I have to talk to parents and families. The reality is, for many decades now, that we haven't been able to get that done. And the question is, how much longer do you want to wait for your baby? And I have two kids myself. Uh, How much longer do you want to wait for your baby for them to get that together? And they've been for many decades, haven't gotten it. If we know a half a mile away, there's a school that's working right now. And I find that sort of message that we can get a better educational outcome for your child right now, while at the same time, so it's not an either or, it's not an abandonment. We still have to continue to push for accountability and reimagining teacher prep to get our our best teachers in the most at-risk schools. We have to work with our union partners to make sure that the educators have the support they need, but also that we're holding folks accountable if they're not doing the right thing. So we still have to do that, but but that doesn't mean you got to wait for all of that, particularly, I argue, to parents and families as well. They haven't earned the right for you to wait either. Right. They haven't given you a track record that should suggest you should you should give them more of the benefit of the doubt, even if that may mean that your child isn't ready for their future because they still can't can't work things out. And what do you say in that same vein to the people who would use that sort of rationale to disagree with the reform movement? This idea that, like, we've sort of been in a reform state for 20 years Mm -hmm. and we've tried everything. We did the small Mm -hmm. school stuff. We did like we said that. We're going to put the resources closest to the kids and we're going to like have these innovative principal selection pipelines and testing is going to be the thing. And like in most of the places, the outcomes have like if they shifted at all, have shifted marginally, have not shifted in any way to match the level of investment that like the reform community has has put in. So what do we do? Like, what do we do in that context that like, you know, it's like 20 years of really aggressive reform that hasn't really shown the outcomes. Right. I mean, I probably pushed just a little bit. I mean, I think there's been some definitely incremental, you know, gains. So I would definitely agree that compared to the investment, I agree with you fully. Compared to the investment, we, we should have expected more. And so I think it's no question reform has to always reflect. I personally do think the whiteness of the reform space is part of the explanation for why it hasn't been as effective as it could be. Uh, you know, I think the idea, I mean, for example, in my city of Newark, we had folks coming in, you know, 28-year-old white kids from the Midwest uh, dropping into the South Ward of Newark to open up schools and middle-aged folk of color who have been educating kids at a high level uh, for uh, 10, 15 years who may not have been discernible to the ed reform people who may have just been principals in these schools that the that the ed reform folks didn't know about they for whatever reason couldn't get the access to resources to open up a school but these young kids could and they were still learning and they were well-intentioned and they still generated a lot of good because the traditional bureaucracy is frankly so broken i actually think the inc- the benefits were larger the uh, a reflection of the fact that the traditional bureaucracy is so broken as compared to 
how I don't think that I don't think the new people came in were all of that to, to be clear. I think that just the traditional bureaucracy actually is so broken. But I think actually, if we then invest and empower with and 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 create more opportunities for the people who have already been there and who are rooted and know these kids and families better, we'll see even better results. But I also think we have to reflect on some of these some of these policies. I mean, the charter school innovation I think is very positive and good. If the authorization is done the right way, right? If you have a proliferation of for-profits, lacks authorization, it's very poor. And so we, many states are all over the map in terms of how that's done. Uh, we have a variety of different pipeline programs uh, of, of varying degrees of effectiveness. I still continue to think the lack of high-quality teachers is just such a big constraint. So a, a big piece of our work now is reimagining teacher prep, getting more clinical-based approaches into the teacher prep space so we can get more educators who are ready to hit you know, hit ready to drive achievement from day one. Uh, so I think there's, I think we have to, you know, we'd have to take a hard look of what's worked, what hasn't worked, and then make the appropriate adjustments so we can hopefully get to a better level of, of, of outcomes. Are there any things that you think we've done in the Everform space in the past sort of decade that, that not regret, but that like we did it and it just wasn't the thing? My, the biggest thing I think that should be regretted, and I guess I wouldn't say we, because I wasn't, because I've been with D for three years. Before that, I was doing Everform work in my local community. But the biggest mistake that I think the Everform space has made is coming to entirely too many different communities um, and not only partnering, but that the people in those communities need to own and drive everything that affects their kids, right? Period. Uh, so if it's a beautiful thing, it is an amazing thing that philanthropists and other stakeholders want to bring resources to low-income communities of color uh, where there's a dearth of resources. That is amazing. We need people to keep doing that. People need to say, if I want to actually bring educational change to a Baltimore, to a Newark, to a Chicago, Philadelphia, et cetera, I got to go get the consent of the people in that community. And they have to drive it. They have to set the agenda. They have to uh, be uh, not at the kiddie table, but at the main table deciding where resources are going to be distributed. Entirely too many communities where, frankly, white folks with shallow, if any, connections to the community all of a sudden are dropping in, opening schools, and local community people with the capacity to really drive achievement aren't a part of that. Not only is that a mistake, first and foremost, for kids, because I'm very clear uh, that experienced, community-based people, frankly, can run schools, frankly, better than many of the young people who came in and out of the blue are trying to run schools in these cities, and at worst can do at least the same type of quality job those these new people could do if they had the same resources, I, I might add, as well. So number one, is bad for kids. Number two, it's a political disaster. Because the brand for this work uh, becomes totally toxic uh, because local communities, rightfully so, will just see that as another extension of the kind of colonialism that particularly people of color are used to. Used to people coming into communities, doing what it is they want to do under the name that we think is better for you. But you're going to just have to react to what we do. You're not going to be an author of it. Uh, you're going to be the kind of object of what it is that others have initiated. Very well-intentioned, uh, but there's been many... Uh, you know, policy initiatives that for, for that have been well intentioned, but that in execution uh, caused more problems than uh, than they than they than they needed to. What um? How do you defend charter schools in a context where there are other groups like the NAACP who have been very clear that they think the charter schools are damaging communities of color, yeah. um, and then there there are people like you who right. think the charter schools can do really positive, amazing right. things for kids. How do you how do you talk about charter schools in a context where there's such yeah. a divide? 
Well, we just talk about one. First, we support the parents' right to decide, not me, not the NAACP. We believe that the charter should be announced, but that the parent should decide where they want to send their baby. Parents repeatedly support that by the fact that they're continuing to send their kids to public charter schools. Uh, and frankly, I don't have any problem saying where I disagree with people. Uh, my first job as a lawyer was with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Uh, I litigated some of the DSAG cases. Probably 90% of the things they do, I wholeheartedly agree with. I disagree with them on this issue. And, I, and, and I'm very, I unapologetically stand with scores of millions of black parents and parents of color and some low-income white parents. Uh, who want this option for their families. I then referenced the Credo study, which has shown that for, for black students in particular, we talk about in the context of NAACP, although their work is broader, uh, black students and Latino students receive many, many more days of learning in terms of reading and math in the, in the public charter schools in the largest cities in this country. Um, and the reality is, uh, you know, uh, uh, frankly, um, you know, uh, there's very few members of the NAACP who will send their kids to the schools that low-income black and brown kids, uh, families, are uh, generally restricted to. And so my uh, response generally is, is if options are good for everybody else, why are they not good enough for low-income uh, families of color? Why should they be restricted to a school that we know hasn't worked uh, for many decades? Why is it problematic for them to have options? And furthermore, do we not believe in them? Do we not believe they know how to make decisions? Right? Because what the moratorium says is we know better than you. We, want, we don't even want you to have the choice because we've decided uh, that we don't think these are choices that should be available to you. I actually believe in black parents and families, and I believe in their capacity to make judgment about what's good for their own babies. One of the last sort of policy questions is there's also disagreement in the sort of reform states about sort of the integration question. Yeah. And there's some people like the Howard Fullers who, yeah. you know, that takes a very strong stance on it. But I wanted to to ask you, since we have you here, yeah. what's your take on, on integration as a public right. policy perspective? Yeah, you know, I think uh, in theory, I think integration is a great thing for all uh, kids of all cultures because there's so many stereotypes. There's so much racial misunderstanding, uh, so much misunderstanding across other domains, uh, whether it's class, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's uh, immigration status, religion. And I think it's always good for kids to be in diverse environments because they can then realize the universality of the human spirit and also respect cultural differences in a way that I think can build community and build a kind of civic cohesion that I don't think we have. So theoretically, I think it's awesome. But then I look at the reality of our country's history, and I look at the reality, for example, white supremacy, and I really, and I look at the reality that the schools are segregated because white folk don't want to be, don't have their kids educated around black and brown kids, right? That's what our history has, has, has taught us, and so I'm not, I'm not one who's going to force somebody, who's going to force my kids on folk who tell me they don't want them. And then I'm going to drop my two children off or the kids in my community into a school where folk are telling me by their actions uh, that they don't want them. And so my view and we have deep for that reason as well, we have deep residential segregation. So the public charter, because I've heard some people say, well, the charter is there uh, tend to have overwhelmingly black or brown uh, student populations. And that's for the simple fact that they tend to focus in those communities that are the most, have the most educational disadvantages, which are residentially segregated communities, which are overwhelmingly black and brown folks. In the Southward of Newark, where I grew up and still live now, ain't no white folks there. They just ain't there. So if you're going to open up a school there, you're going to be serving the black people in that community. Why are the white people not there? Because they left uh, 40 years ago after the riots, because they didn't want to be around the community with too many black people. So the idea that we're going to compel these folk to want to educate our kids, then drop our kids off uh, in those type of institutions, to me, is irrational. Uh, and I just don't have the confidence or belief 
uh, that folk court tell me they don't want to educate my kids will do so at a high level. Uh, so in any event, so that's my view. So I think in theory, it's beautiful. And if somebody could show me there's a particular context where we will have this sort of rate, this love for kids of color and love for black kids and a deep belief in their capacity, I'm all for it. But I suspect what will happen is what we've seen. Because we have these white supremacist ideas about the capacity of black kids, what do we see in facially integrated schools? And I say facially because just schools that have uh, kids of various racial backgrounds in it, but there's not true integration. What do we see? We see the black and brown kids tracked to the remedial classes. We see the black and brown kids uh, disproportionately sent to the child study team and classified as having a special ed, generally behavioral disabilities. What do we see? We see the black and brown kids suspended and expelled at higher lit rates, fueling the school to prison uh, pipeline. What do we see? We see lower graduation rates, lower proficiency rates. And so in any event, until somebody can show me that an integrated school will be truly integrated uh, so that we won't have these sort of outcomes. I'm about educating our kids wherever they are at the highest level. Continue your friend of the pod. Thanks for coming. Thank today. you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Boom. You. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save That People. Make sure that you tune back in on Tuesday and tell a friend and rate us on iTunes. Thanks. Thanks.